Hi, everyone, and welcome to this What You Talking About Willis podcast. My name is Henry Willis, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Politics here at Halebury College in Melbourne, Victoria. Thank you for joining us as we discuss all things international relations, making connections between current world events and the VCE Global Politics curriculum. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, everyone. It's Thursday, the 3rd of June, and welcome to another episode of What You're Talking About, Willis. Uh, In our previous few episodes, we've done a complete overview of the ethical issue of human rights, where we've looked at the laws relating to this issue and the degree to which various responses have or have not upheld those laws from both cosmopolitan and realist perspectives. And also we've looked at the three core ethical debates relating to this ethical issue of human rights, which is the arguments of culture versus universality, economic challenges versus universality, and the debate over our responsibility to protect others from a cosmopolitan standpoint versus the idea of maintaining sovereignty at all costs, which of course is our realist point of view. And so now we turn to our second ethical issue, which for us is people movement, which is primarily concerning the different groups of people that sort of travel around the world for different reasons. And I suppose that's probably a good place to start because we call this area people movement because there are lots of different types of people that move and based on how we define those people and what attributes we give them will ultimately depend and and define what our obligations to those people might be. So the most common term you'll probably hear in this particular area of study is the idea of being a refugee. And a refugee is a very important legal term because it clearly classifies an angel as someone who is fleeing persecution. And so a refugee is someone who needs to leave their home country um, because there's a legitimate fear for their life. That's often because of things like persecution, you might be an ethnic minority, you might be a political opponent, you might belong to a different religious sect, so there's a potential for persecution. It might be that you're an Afghan national who's been helping American security forces set up democracy in Afghanistan, and when the US military leaves, um, the Taliban may wish to punish you for your support of the American intervention, and that may make you a subject to flee and therefore be classified as a refugee. And so refugees flee because of some kind of persecution or fear of persecution, and they cannot return to their home because essentially they would be subject to um, violence or death, basically, if they were to return or they're physically unable to return. Um, It may also be for other factors like climate change, for example. there will be potentially climate refugees as rising sea levels increase because essentially you cannot return to your home if it's underwater. So again, there's lots of potential reasons why you might be classified as a refugee. Now, refugee is the key term in this unit because that outlines that you have certain legal uh, rights and those rights are very clearly established in international law, which we are going to look at in a minute. But because refugees have become a politicised term and they outline certain state responsibilities, um, we often hear lots of other terms being used to define how people move from one country to the next. Um, And they're defined in this way because um, it's politically beneficial. So the other common term you may hear is asylum seeker, which is certainly a term that our government likes to use. 
And asylum seeker is a term used when you don't know if someone is a legitimate refugee or not. So if someone crosses your border um, and they're seeking asylum in your country, um, it's a term that is often used because you have no obligations to an asylum seeker necessarily. Um, if they are a refugee, then of course you might have obligations, but they could be someone who is arguably entering for illegitimate reasons, illegal reasons, um, for economic reasons. And so often states like the term asylum seeker better because it removes sort of some legal responsibility um, on their behalf. But in the Australian context, the vast majority of um, asylum seekers do end up turning out to be refugees, which highlights, I guess, the political nature of the, the term. The other key term that is commonly used and has been sort of weaponized um, to sort of hurt refugees is the idea of an economic migrant, someone that moves from one country to another in search of economic opportunities as opposed to fleeing persecution. And so economic migrants, um, states are not bound to protect them because they're not vulnerable in fleeing persecution. And the idea of being an economic migrant is often used to sort of suggest that a lot of people who arrive at our doorstep do so illegitimately. They're not fleeing persecution. And in fact, they're only seeking financial benefit. Um, ironically, countries like Australia and America and, and other European states bring in huge numbers of economic migrants every, every year, um, largely to fill um, important job shortages and skill shortages. And so while many people have a problem with migration, um, particularly with uh, asylum seekers, um, they often forget to like realize the fact that you know potentially hundreds of thousands of economic migrants come to Australia every year um, and are often wanted and advertised to come um, by the Australian government to fill you know key shortages in, in trades um, in healthcare and so um, that kind of just shows how economic migrants are often quite valued by states but um, the term has been quite political uh, politicized to be used as a weapon to sort of punish refugees and so they're the key terms that you'll probably hear in this unit the other one is an internally displaced person so sometimes you might become sort of like a refugee in your own country that means you've had to flee your home, but you may not have, for example, left Syria entirely. You may be in a, in a camp um, within your own country. Um, but yes, a refugee, asylum seeker, and economic migrant are probably the three key terms that you should be aware of for this unit. And using those terms correctly is important, particularly the term refugee, because there are certain legal connotations attached to that term. So that probably then makes a, an appropriate segue to our first international law or treaty that we have to study. So remember for human rights, we studied two and we're gonna do the same thing for people movement now. So the most fundamental refugee law that you need to understand is the CRSR, which is the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees. And the most important thing that the CRC does um, sorry, the CRSR does, is it actually defines who a refugee is. And so what we were talking about before, um, about refugees fleeing persecution, being unsafe, and being forced to sort of go to another country with no possibility of returning to their own country. That definition is defined in this international law and treaty. And that's very important because once you start calling someone a refugee, if you have signed and ratified this convention, then there is a legal expectation that you start treating them in a certain way. And so 
from there, the CRSR goes to outline some of the core standards of treatment for refugees. So Article 3, for example, suggests that state parties will not discriminate against refugees. And Article 33 is probably one of the most important ones because this one guarantees refugees protection from expulsion, which means that you cannot use police measures, the uh, border security, uh, military, police, to deny refugees entry um, from coming into your country. Now, the CRSR has had not as wide a ratification as some of the universal sort of human rights laws that we were looking at in the previous uh, topics, but 146 states have ratified the convention, um, including Australia, and many are taking the appropriate steps necessary, necessary to support that particular convention. Um, Article 24, for example, promotes the rights of refugees to work in accordance with domestic laws, and many states, like Lebanon, for example, um, they allow refugee children to attend their local schools, they are given access access to public health care um, and most refugees in Lebanon are given the right to work which are all sort of signs of the country acting in a cosmopolitan way to uphold and support the provisions of the CRSR. So that is what the law does. Um, in terms of its impact, um, the CRSR has been widely limited in its effectiveness for a couple of key reasons. Um, firstly, there are states who refuse to sign and ratify it, just like with our other human rights conventions. So Malaysia, for example, have publicly stated that signing the CRSR would force us to treat refugees better than our own people. So Malaysia is a very heavy sort of bottleneck for refugees and asylum seekers, and uh, that would put an enormous strain on their economy if they were then required to grant these rights and privileges to refugees. So they argue from an economic point of view that it's um, untenable, which would be an example of realism where Malaysia is choosing to uphold their economic sovereignty um, as opposed to upholding international standards. But then we also see the side of it where countries like Australia have signed and ratified the CRSR, and yet we do many things which seem to sort of blatantly violate its provisions. Um, we just mentioned Article 33, which guarantees refugees from ex uh, protection from expulsion, and yet Australia actually has a military policy under Operation Sovereign Borders, where we use the military and the Coast Guard to forcibly tow away um, illegal maritime arrivals back to Indonesia, um, which is seems to be a direct affront to Article 33 of the CRSR. We've also been very heavily criticised for our use of mandatory offshore detention, um, which arguably shouldn't happen under the CRSR because we shouldn't be punishing refugees for arriving. Um, we shouldn't be locking them up. We certainly shouldn't be locking children up, which has been a common accusation um, of the Australian government in the past. And the average length of time spent in a Australian detention facility is around 600 days. So, you know, really almost two years people spend in these facilities without really having committed any kind of legitimate crime. And so many would say that is very unethical um, and it's a very realist response, which it is. Um, and it was sort of heightened in 2015 when Tony Abbott, when he was the Prime Minister, made a very public statement that Australia is sick of being lectured to by the UN, um, which was a pretty, you know, a pretty blazing sort of like affront to the idea of cosmopolitan and Australia's obligations to the rules-based international order. In saying that, though, 
the Australian response may be ethically justified, um, largely because it protects Australian sovereignty. It does stop people smuggling um, and arguably saves people from drowning at sea. And so that these are the sort of phrases that our government uses in order to sort of demonstrate the effectiveness of their policy and to justify it morally, um, as opposed to it just being seen as an immoral or an unethical policy that ultimately um, oppresses the rights of refugees. And so that's a nice little overview of the CRSR. You also need to know a second law. So the second law that we're gonna look at is a little bit more specific and we're gonna focus on the protocol against the smuggling of migrants by land, air and sea. And I chose this particular protocol, um, which is in addition to a broader international law about organized crime, because it's an interesting one. It can be something which can be quite contradictory to the CRSR, because although I think we would all agree that combating um, people smuggling is a good thing because people smuggling is a horrendous crime. Uh, many states can actually use attempts to stop people smuggling as an excuse to actually deny basic refugee rights. And so if you take the, the Australian example, we see a very harsh border policy being implemented, which has detrimental impacts on the rights of refugees. And yet at the same time, um, we see it serving as a key way to actually curb the people smuggling trade because if you can't get into Australia, the business for smuggling people then disappears. And so it actually could be seen as cosmopolitan in that particular sense. And of course, the reverse is true for states who try to do the right thing by refugees. So if you take Germany, for example, who've let in you know 1.2 million refugees in a very short period of time in sort of was it 2015, 2016, um, that's a hugely generous approach to combating the refugee crisis. However, does that promote illegal entry, um, informal movements of people across Europe, across the Mediterranean Sea? Does that promote then smuggling and potential deaths at sea? And, and arguably it does. And so what we're seeing here is how a response to something might be ethical in one context, but immoral in another. Um, and the same with the Australian response as well. Um, it is often used and justified under the sort of ethical framework of stopping uh, people smuggling. So like your CRSR, you need to know the law and a couple of the provisions. So a couple of the core provisions there, Article 6, where states will adopt legislation to combat illegal people smuggling. And Article 7, states will cooperate in combating the um, people smuggling trade. So there's an emphasis on legislation and cooperation. And we've seen all sorts of responses. So we've seen the responses that we've just referred to. Um, we have seen states uh, attempt to serve justice through legislation and punish uh, um, people smugglers, which is very much the case in Australia where there's been a number of successful prosecutions. Although it must be said that um, about 95% of the accused were captains and crews of migrant smuggling vessels. And very rarely do we actually get the chance to prosecute the um, architects or the ones who are really making all the money off this very um, profitable trading of people. So um, justice is being served to an extent, but also, you know, there's limitations to that. 
And then also we can flip the ethical perspective and look at a country like Italy, who again have been very heavy on the prosecution of smugglers, but to the point where now that Italy is also doing things like prosecuting non-governmental organisations who are saving refugees from drowning at sea, um, suggesting that it's in violation of Italy's sort of legal codes to stop the trafficking of people, which is just, you know, grossly unethical. Um, but nonetheless, um, it does show sort of the sinister side of this attempt to try and sort of discourage people from smuggling across state borders. So that's probably a good little overview of the two international laws and treaties that you need to know for people movement. You need to identify the law, describe the provisions and explain why these provisions exist. And then, of course, you need to sort of do things about evaluating responses, the degree to which people are cooperating and upholding these rights or prosecuting smugglers and implementing legislation to stop people smuggling. So just like with human rights, um, we look at the cosmopolitan and the realist attempts to um, either uphold or push back against these international laws and treaties. And also when we look at the responses to people movement in the next episode, um, we'll continue to make connections to these international laws and treaties as well. So the responses should always be considered in relation to the various articles of the laws that they either do or do not uphold. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, tune in next episode and we will talk about the responses to this refugee issue. Take care.